everybody, and welcome back to the Cast and the Furious, that uh, occasional podcast from your friends at Days of Thunder, looking at the best booked wrestling promotion on earth, that being the fast cinematic universe, the Dom Toretto territory. I'm your host, your host of Days of Thunder, Dave Ryan, and I am joined by my usual panel. Uh, first, he is my PWOM stablemate over from the Strong Style Story podcast. Chris Damasano. Chris, how are you today? Been good. Uh, been expecting to do this episode for a little while. We had some snags along the way with scheduling and the like, but I'm glad mm. to have all of the boys together here for another ride into the Fast Cinematic Universe. Ready yeah. to go. It's safe to say that uh, maybe people who enjoy these Cast and Furious episodes don't appreciate uh, how... Uh, how difficult it can be sometimes to organize uh, a podcast recording across uh, two continents uh, in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, we a, get a it se- done. Se- yeah, seven hour time difference where if those of you who uh, only the three of us can see it in video form, but if anyone else could see it in video form, they'd say the difference between you two having lights on at this point with it being at night and then it being as bright as ever on my end of the spectrum here, which... Parfait, of course, you know. It, it is certainly like it's a bizarre thing to deal with. Um, but look, we're here. We made it. And joining us as well, riding, rounding out the panels, should I say, is my link to the cast co-host, my brother in arms, Jack Lazell. Jack, how are you? Bom dia, my friend. Bom dia. <laughs> For we it's... are taking a trip on this episode to Brazil. And yes, I am are. excited. Because normally I associate Brazil with football. Sorry, Chris. And uh, it's nice that now this crosses over into not just football, but also cars, mayhem, explosions, and guns. And biceps. Don't forget biceps. There's a lot of bi- There's a. Do you know what? Like I, I'm gonna. I'm gonna go a little bit early here. There's some meaty men slapping me in this movie. There certainly is, yeah. Jack. I suppose let's let, we we take a breather before we get into all that. Like uh, I was just saying before we came on, I haven't talked to you in the dog's age. We've been passing ships on the night on our own podcast. How have you been, motherfucker? <laughs> yeah, man. Uh, not too bad. I've been to a stag do in, yeah. in Edinburgh. It's, you see, it's weird for me and Jack because, like, me and Jack usually talk like throughout the day, every day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's <is> true. And <laughs> the last few weeks, we've both been so slammed. It's like, oh, who's this guy on the Zoom call? Yeah, very much so. Yeah, been up to lots of different bits and pieces and uh, hijinks. Yeah, it, it's nice that we can now odd jobs. Yeah, exactly. Throwing hats at people. It's nice that we can now reconnect in this uh, in this format, which is to discuss the greatest movie franchise all time, all my life. Yeah. Um. Let's, I suppose, let's just get into it uh, before we discuss the actual um, plot of Fast Five and get into the the nitty gritty on it. The first thing I want to talk about is how, you know, we kind of set it up a little on the last episode talking about Fast and Furious from 2009, but it is astonishingly clear uh, in Fast Five that the game has changed. This is now an entirely different genre of motion picture it is unrecognizable from the original street racing series that is not to say that there isn't some some class racing uh and and some car-based hijinks in this one um but it is night and day um chris for for most people who were kind of like uh 
in and out on the the Fast and Furious train up until this point in, in the franchise. I, I, I think it, we can say without contradiction that this is where a lot of people went, do you know what? Okay, these movies are awesome. Yeah, I think it's that breaking point altogether. There's a lot of factors that go into it as well, but I do think that Justin Lin settling into the role at this point ever since kind of taking the reins within uh, Tokyo Drift in the situation and then moving for everything. At this point, he's got a grasp on what he wants to do and we know this is sort of the second trilogy to an extent compared to the first three movies and they're working around that at this point and telling specific stories within it. It's very, as you mentioned, the actual car racing, car scene, and things like that, you get bits of it here and there, just to still remind you this is where the franchise came from and that's where its roots are. But it's become a full-fledged heist movie as of this as of this particular entry. And then going forward, you see the shenanigans get wackier and sort of out of the realm of reality, if you will. But at the same time, who cares about reality? Just embrace the chaos at this point. And this is what this movie did so incredibly well. Sure. Jack, since 2011, when this film came out, how many times have you had to have the conversation? No, no, these films are actually good now. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because um, I think probably one of the bigger holdouts, though, was uh, our, our link to the cast co-host, Mark Robinson, who... Don't get me we... started on that some bitch. <laughs> so, yeah, speaking of some bitch, my word, does, uh, does Dwayne Johnson like to say some bitch a lot? But anyway, that's, that's for a bit later on down the line. But yeah, uh, it, it, I have to explain to people because... You get two sort of reactions from from people when it's Fast and Furious. Some people who, who know who are who are part of the familia, the extended familia, will be like, "Oh yeah, I love those movies." And then other people sort of go, "Oh yeah, it's those movies." And I'm like, "No, no, no, seriously, please, just please watch them because yeah, they, yeah they're not ironically good anymore. They're good, good. They're good, good. And also, you can't anyone trying to take it seriously or filter it through any kind of logical prism." like has never watched action movies before because let me tell you right anybody that's kind of attacking these movies from a base of oh there's fantastical stupid stuff in the physics doesn't make sense go back and watch every single one of your favorite action movies if you're into them and you can pick holes and massive plot gaps that you could drive trains and trucks through no problem Who gives a shit about this? That's- I like the things when the things explode yeah. and they smash and they do things. And then Tyrese goes, whoa, damn, that is the kind of shit that I am here for. Okay. That's yeah. That's I've always been an opinion. That's not what the genre is here for. Uh, no. Like picking holes and things. And I think it's something, Chris, like, um, you know, we're, we're all, I think I can say on behalf of the three of us, determinally online human beings. And I, I think it's something it pretty much when these films started kind of like uh, coming into their own was during the rise of that kind of like overly critical of plot holes. Like this, people call it like the, the cinema sins approach mm-hmm. to oh, dissecting yeah. mm-hmm. films where you're just like, you're nitpicking to a point where you're, you're, you're missing the pure enjoyment of popcorn cinema. And it's something yeah. that thankfully I think we're like, as a culture, big air quotes, um, mm. become more aware of now and try to push back against that. But it's certainly, I think a lot of the holdouts were those people. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And to me in particular, CinemaSense as a whole, if there was any annals of history within the course of 
YouTube and the like, if there was a channel that I could just go, yeah, we're just going to delete this for the time being and not ever deal with you ever again. Yeah. That would be one of the first channels I think would go. Oh, to yeah. Me yeah. It's, it's probably been one of the most regressive trends in media criticism in the last generation. And I don't think mm-hmm. I'm being hyperbolic when I say that. No. And I do agree with that. And the bit, thing for me in particular is that it's very easy to be an edgy tryhard that shits yeah. on everything. That's yeah. one of the easiest things you can do on the planet. You'd be surprised at how yeah. easy it is yeah. on that front. So, and it, like, that's not to say don't be critical of things. Yeah. But it's, it, it's you know, yeah. It's, it's, it's being like to a fault critical of every single like stray blade of grass in a field kind of thing. Um, yeah, look, let's move on to it because this is going to be a joyous occasion on this because I think for a lot of people, this is like number one with a bullet in the franchise. This is Fast Five. Uh, do, you to, um, do you want me to set the scene as I have done with, uh, oh, with previous and yes. let you know well, what was happening on well, the release day? I'll tell, you uh-huh. for, I'll tell you what. Firstly, let's do, we'll do uh, a little production note here. Then we'll do your set in the scene and then I'll go and into my box thing. office deets. Oh, you have a thing? as well yeah. oh this is gonna uh-huh. be great um so the first thing i want to say is um going forward because these films get meatier and have more moments that we are going to be popping absolutely huge for on this podcast so meat we are, something meat. Yep. yeah yeah we are going to take these films one at a time now um going forward because there is just too much to fit into one cast so we will just be doing fast five on this show uh which is showing it the respect it deserves because yeah, this 100%. and the two films that follow it are I, I, among my favorite modern trilogies of, of uh, especially popcorn cinema. But um, Jack, take us back to uh, April 2011 and tell us what was going on in the world. So April the 29th, 2011 was the American release date and it was released on the same day as Kate and William's what royal wedding in the UK. Oh, wow. So you had the choice of sitting around and watching, you know, rich aristocrats on TV getting married, or you could have gone to the cinema and you could have watched fucking Vin Diesel and Dwayne Johnson tearing that shit up. And I know which one of those things that I chose to do that weekend. And there was no <laughs> weddings involved. Um, sadly, on this day, we lost David Mason, who's a session trumpet player who played trumpet on the Penny Lane by the Beatles, most notably. Uh, topping the charts... In the US was SM by Rihanna because chains and whips excite her. And in the UK, for, for us and Ireland at the same time as well, Dave, was Party Rock Anthem by LMFAO. Oh, God. Was any any comments around? on either of those two tunes, Lance? Um, well, the <laughs> latter is definitely best consigned to the past. <laughs> for sure. Uh, so the number one movie, because obviously Fast Five went number one in both the US and the UK. When, the, when it was released, as it every single iteration after this just went straight to the top of the box office. Um, so in, in the UK, it overtook Scream 4, which, believe it or not, was a number one movie over here. It was not a number one movie in America. Uh, Rio, the uh, animated parrot movie, was oh, uh, number one in the US. That's, that's appropriate. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know. It's perfect. You go from Rio to Rio. Rio. Uh, and then they both got uh, seceded by Thor as the Marvel Cinematic Universe started to take over just insanity. But like how good of a back to back popcorn box office month is, is is like April into May if you go from Fast Five to Thor. That's pretty good. Yeah. 
amazing amazing uh, if you're and, if what you're trying to set up here is that you want Kenneth Branagh in Fast Ten, I'm here. Oh, oh, give me. I that. mean, by all means, please. I'd be down for that. Yeah. But uh, give him his uh, his uh, murder on the Orient Express, uh, Hercule Poirot mustache. Oh, yeah. Why, why wouldn't <laughs> you? Um, and in other news as well, the day before the 28th was the 2011 NFL draft and uh, future MVP Cam Newton was drafted number one overall. And uh, yeah, 10 years, 10 years later, and he's, he's struggling to find a roster. So unfortunately, or, to, or a starting berth anyway, he's on a roster. So time kind of owns us all. Injuries and time can do a number on you, especially on the NFL side. Of the exactly. Unless you're Vin Diesel. And I should mention also that in the IGN Summer Movie Awards, this was voted the best action movie yeah. as well. Damn right. Damn right. Uh, Chris, Chris, you had a thing. Yeah, of course. So as we all know at this point, and this was something that we covered, I believe, in the previous episode when talking about Tokyo Drift to an extent, Japan has a very literal approach to translating imported movie titles. And that's been a trend with the Fast and Furious uh, series as a whole. So to present to you this uh, edition of the uh, specific Japanese title for these particular movies in the Fast and Furious saga, this one, Fast Five, that we're going to be talking about today was called Wild Speed Megamax. Yes. Oh, hell yeah, it was. Yeah. I, I can't remember when exactly I found out about those names, uh, but it makes me so sad that they aren't those names internationally. Because Wild Speed is awesome. It's um, a very good. It's a very good alternate name. It is excellent. Um, so uh, yes, this movie released on April 15, twenty eleven, in Rio, and April 29th, twenty eleven, in the United States and worldwide. It is a stonking one hundred and thirty minutes long. It's just too much movie um to to fit into 90 minutes at this stage. And I believe the extended cut that I have on Blu-ray is probably like over that two and a half hour length because i think it's about 20 minutes to half an hour is cut out of it for the theatrical run mm-hmm. um the budget was 125 million which to be fair for such a like big explosiony location-based action movie i'm kind of surprised it was 100, only 125 million do you but know it- where 15 million of that went right in old Vinny's pocket <laughs> damn right <laughs> <laughs> and it grossed, as Jack had alluded to with uh, topping box office charts, it grossed a whopping $626.1 million. That is a lot of cheddar, my friends. Yeah. Um, I mean, has anyone ever spent $125 million any better than this? Oh, it, it's, I'll tell you what, the value for money you're getting on this movie is, is unbelievable. Yeah. Um, this also marks the the fast franchise franchise debut of the world's wettest man, Dwayne Johnson. <laughs> um, yeah. do, do, do you have down who the original person in to play Luke Hobbs in this movie was, other than Dwayne Johnson? Oh is, no, I don't. Yeah, if, it's I believe if, I have it. It is a bizarre, but the original person. That Please tell me it was Fred Durst. It, it, do you know what? It's probably closer to Fred Durst than you think. No, it's not. Um, the original person that was going to play Luke Hobbs, and my word, this this is a different movie feel, was Tommy Lee Jones. Yeah. Jo- uh, from the uh, 
comments in which they had for like the Blu-ray specials, Justin Lee mentioned that they envisioned the initial role and uh, Vin Diesel as well, that they envisioned the initial role for a Tommy Lee Jones type. So sort of the older, more grizzled type veteran guy. But then because I believe at the time, the way that he explained it was uh, Dwayne Johnson was one of the few guys from Hollywood that reached out to Vin about like congratulating him on the success of like how the fourth entry went and things like that. And that he'd seen comments on social media about the two of them doing a movie together at some point or another. And then they bring him into the project. They let Rocky do his thing and sort of take over the character, mold it to how he wants to see a fit. And that's how we get the Luke Hobbs that we've seen in so many movies going forward. As much as this is a turning point for the Fast franchise, Jack, it is a huge turning point in the career of Dwayne Johnson who had been doing well to this point. Like, it's not to say he was, like, uh, doing terribly before this movie, but this is where he becomes the most bankable action star in the world. Um, Like, how excited were you when you heard about the addition of The Rock to this franchise? Um, And what do you think about what these films did for his career? Because I know you're definitely a man, like we've had many a knockdown drag out that we will not re-legislate about the, the Rock's canon of films, but you're definitely the higher man. So what's your take on all this? Yeah, I, I kind of think up to this point, his his movie career kind of been a bit hit and miss. Um, you know, he kind of rocked up originally in, in The Mummy Returns was like the first big thing that... that Aku Machete, my friends. Yeah. Aku Machete, da! Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then he was just kind of bouncing around. There was the occasional film, like Walking Tall is awesome. It's just a rock and a two by four smashing the shit out of a small town. I think anyone that saw that movie knew that at some stage he would end up in the Fast franchise. But he went into this sort of weird, I'm going to do kids movies kind of phase. Mm. And I wonder, like, because obviously the same thing happened to Vin Diesel. Like he ended up in that Pacifier movie and stuff. And it's weird how like similar their careers as action stars are where they have like one big kind of breakout role. um, And then, you know, there's like a weird troubled period where they're making like weird sci-fi movies and stuff like rock was in Southland tales and shit. Uh, And then the like sort of kid phase happens for the rock where he had like game plan and um, what's it Two fairy, which is actually surprisingly watchable because it's him and Stephen Merchant. Uh, no, you know, no who, 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 who anyone doesn't know, he's the less hateable version of Ricky Gervais. Uh, <laughs> yeah. N- uh, noted kids movie Doom as well. Yeah, Doom. Yeah, well, Doom, yeah, it's just an all-out disaster. But yeah, he's in that sort of like, I, I, I could be a bankable movie star, but I'm doing kids movies at the moment phase because Rock is an entertaining guy. He could literally probably do anything he could turn his hand to. Um, and straight out of that sort of weird point, he has uh, that little cameo in the other guys. And I think anyone that saw that was like, right, uh, you know, like him and, and Samuel Jackson was like, wow, The Rock could be a legit sort of comedy slash action guy um, that could easily headline a movie because that is one of the most memorable bits of that film. And it was kind of segueing from that point that he ended up in The Fast Five and after that, I don't know if he changed his agent or if he sort of realigned his priorities or whatever. But the movies that he was in, following from that, he just started picking like big action, epic franchises and making less films, trying to do less, being more focused with his projects and stuff. And yeah, it just 
from then on out, he's part of the familia in Fast and Furious until he kind of sort of isn't now anymore, yeah. which we can get to in some later episodes, I'm sure. Yeah, And I can follow on that a little bit as well, too, because at the time initially with him entering Hollywood and stuff, he still sort of had, you know, a few bump, bumps and grinds here and there, but it was basically the year after Fast Five came out that he founded his production company with his ex-wife, who's now his agent, uh, Nanny Garcia for Seven Bucks Productions, and that's at that point, that's when really like the focus where became, right, let's just do every blockbuster summer popcorn flick possible and just build on this. So it's kind of a situation too where if you guys remember back in the 2000s when Will Smith had the reputation of being like that summertime blockbuster movie king, Wayne yeah. Rock Johnson basically took that torch and he's still running with it for the most part. Yeah. Into was it, like 2021. Wasn't forward, that the so. thing? It was like you just put Will Smith in a movie and it's guaranteed to go over 200 million at the box office. Like, yeah, unless it's Wild Wild West, but we don't talk about that. <laughs> yeah, but I think that did still quite do quite well. It did, yeah, it, it, yeah, it did, yeah, it did still it's, make its money back. On it, it set but. cinema back decades, but it made <laughs> bank. Listen, we got that, we got Wild Wild West, the song out of Wild Wild West, True. the movie, and also. Dave, you mentioned him we earlier. The Kenneth Branagh. <laughs> Kenneth Branagh. But we also got the uh, the greatest anecdote of all time at a live Q&A from Kevin Smith. If you have never seen uh, an Ian with Kevin Smith, and I know like particularly his modern work, people are not so hot on. But his evening with Kevin Smith's where he's just doing Q&As at colleges are fascinating for like a guy being overly candid while working within the Hollywood system. Mm. But his story about when he got commissioned to write a screenplay for Superman and working with the producer, John Peters, is worth your time to watch online. It's about a 20 minute story and it will kill you dead if you've never heard it before. And I've heard it many times over a decade plus since I heard it the first time and it still kills me dead. So funny. That 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 anecdote and the Prince anecdote on yeah. the same show are just, oh, yeah. Incredible. But yeah, the, the connection between uh, a failed Superman movie and Wild Wild West will become very apparent to you when uh, Kevin Smith starts describing what yeah. happens in that movie. Um, so, yeah. We got our, our rock stuff out of the way. Let's um, talk about the, the plot of the film. Um, and what I like about this is that Justin Lin has like boiled it down to very simple concepts because, well, one, a lot of the kind of popcorn summer blockbuster audience don't want like overly dense stories or anything like that. They want to have a good time. They want it to follow a, a simple heist or action movie idea. Um, and two, like it gives you more time to focus on uh, an increase in the emphasis on practical effects and stunts in this movie. They had gotten a few pelters for the use of CG backgrounds in the past in the franchise. And this marked Justin Lin deciding, no, we're going to go heavy on the practical stuff where possible. And I think it really, really pays off in this. But long story short, um, the film essentially follows on almost directly uh, like uh, the end of four is the start of five um in you know vin diesel dom toretto is is sent away to prison his past finally catches up with him uh you end four and start five on the jailbreak um which is is class like it really lets you know that you're in for a great time because pretty much like they they execute the the escape where the the 
the fucking prison bus flips and then it just goes fucking fast five. I was like, right, we are in. Um, and the majority of the, the kind of memorable parts of this film, um, you know, it, it takes place in Brazil. And you have the gang that we've all become familiar with who are in, in various states of hiding. Um, and they are they get swept up in the the your your crime lord of the week's plans. And while they are uh, tussling things out with him, they are also being pursued by moist gentleman uh, Luke Hobbs uh, as kind of like federal badass uh, who, who drops into the country to try and, and bring in uh, the gang. Um, I suppose, uh, look, uh, Chris, not to pin the 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 responsibility of an entire nation on you, but as oh, our as as our official Brazil correspondent, um, how did you feel uh, about the like the setting of the, the the opening of this movie in Brazil and the kind of portrayal of um, the the kind of the area and the favelas and stuff like that. I think specifically the interesting part for me after doing some research on that was that they actually shot a lot of the favela scenes in San Juan, Puerto Rico, in fact, oh. and they had to sort of work all of the effects around to make the uh, scenarios and specifically the rooftop chasing yeah. that they had to match up to sort of the scenery that they'd seen in Rio and the lights because it would have been too complicated, I think, to film yeah. some I of those scenes in Rio and I see exactly where they're coming from with I that. I believe I read that that particular rooftop chase took over a week to fill up. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's incredible. Just yeah. all the uh, all the pieces that they had to put together, all the sort of backgrounds that they had to work into to make sure that it matched with what they saw in Rio as well. And I think the biggest part is that when Rio, um, well, I guess their team specifically, the production team, mentioned that they were going to be shooting some scenes in Rio and making the that being the background that. The Rio de Janeiro like state commissions and they're like they're like cool yeah give us some more like sort of buzz popularity whatever you want to call it you know attention in that regard I just don't think they knew what they were signing up for unfortunately because I do feel that while they did a couple of really good things with effects and the like had Rio known that the imagery that they would be portraying of their state in the area would be just mostly the sort of really bad parts with the favelas and the like and just the amount of gang violence that does occur in those areas that they would have possibly considered and said hey you know what just set that in puerto rico we're fine we don't we don't need that Uh, but and especially with i have some words in terms of the selection on some of these actors including you know there's nothing against like joaquin gilmeda or uh, Elza Pataki or some of the actors that they picked for some of these roles but if you're going to uh, have Portuguese being spoken picking your drug dealer lord you know henchman being villain of the story being a guy from Portugal in which the dialect is much different than Brazilian Portuguese yeah. and then taking a Spanish actress to do the other big Brazilian part and then the henchman of the big drug lord being a guy from Los Angeles it's not the best. It's it's one of those it's one of those things that's typical of an American production that because oh, yeah. the accent doesn't sound any different to their ear, surely nobody else would notice. But yeah. a lot of the kind of international audience would notice oh, it yeah. straight away. 
and the and the other thing is that it's not like Brazil doesn't have like an acting scene of any kind. Like there's telenovelas pretty much running on like two or three different channels a night, like five nights a week. Yeah. There is no doubt in my mind that had they taken like the extra month to research that, they would have been able to find a couple of, of you know actors and actresses within Brazil that could speak passable enough English to work with the Dwayne Johnsons of the world and things yeah. like that, but also make the Portuguese portions work. Yeah, so. I, I feel like if this movie was made, like if it was going into production this year, that probably would happen. It feels like it's only in the last like yeah. maybe four or five years that people have started getting much better at that, like yeah. casting like people to authentically play the nationality they're trying yeah, to get across. Yeah, there's no doubt in my mind that uh, Hernan Reyes as well probably would go to somebody like a Rodrigo Santoro at this point, but mm. like do for that particular yeah. movie kind of thing. So, like, I I I feel bad often for uh, Joaquin de Almeida because he like I he's I think good. don't I, get me wrong. Yeah, yeah. he's a good he's actor, good. but like he definitely like he definitely gets roped in a lot to be generic South American villain and things. Like I distinctly remember him as the antagonist of season three of 24. Oh yeah. Because mm-hmm. I remember being battered for like six God. months before that series came out with the, uh, the teaser trailers of like him in cuffs and yeah. like the, the voiceover, his name is Ramon Salazar. <laughs> yeah, but, <laughs> you know? remember, yeah. Remember when 24 was like a legitimately good show for like, three or four seasons and then it all just went yeah. to shit man it was like um i remember an absolutely unmissable block of television um on network two over here in ireland at the time was for like a few months there because obviously one of the series didn't run that long but it was like you started off the evening at nine o'clock with um do you remember the steven spielberg produced series taken which was about like um it spanned like half a century of like UFO abductions and stuff like that. It's actually oh. like the quality kind of varies episode to episode, but at the time, especially like look, I was 14 years old, I wasn't really a discerning media critic at the time. I enjoyed it. But then you had that at nine. At 10 o'clock, it was Band of Brothers. Oh, that's and then like eleven o'clock was twenty-four. And nice. it was, that time, was like yeah. the early seasons of 24, like seasons one and two. So you're just like, shit, yeah, man. <laughs> like you're you're trying to go to bed then at 12 o'clock, fucking amped. So um, Joaquim Dalmeida is a three-time Portuguese Golden Globe winner. I'll have you both know. So no. I feel like that commands some damn respect. Yeah, damn but right. Yeah. They probably should have been like, can they at least got like, you know, for, for I'm thinking for the ZZ part, obviously, uh, the guy that ended up playing in Michael Irby's, as you say, is, is from uh, Los Angeles. Could they not got like Anderson Silva to do that shit or something? Yeah. You know, like yeah. just like a really scary Brazilian, like legit Brazilian guy. Like, yeah. I, I mean, that would have brought some credibility to it, right? Yeah, can so, you imagine so, him like, kicking people in the face? Yeah. That would yeah, be great. Like, would 2011 have been like around the like the absolute peak of Anderson Silva? It wouldn't be too far off, would it? Yeah, I kind of feel like he had enough because that was when UFC was kind of really popping off at that yeah. point. Yeah, yeah, and it's one of those situations too where even if it wasn't like Anderson Silva, they could have gotten 
there were a couple of other guys within the MMA scene that people would have easily recognized, like a Vanderlei Silva, for example. Could have oh been my god, Silva, yes. fucking if like the axe murderer shows up in a fast movie, I'm all for it. Like, oh man, you oh, want to hear man. the noises I made when I watched Winter Soldier and fucking George St. Pierre showed up oh, as Batroc, oh, yeah. <laughs> like, and then and then him being in Falcon and Winter Soldier as well, too, which was a treat in and of itself as well. Yeah. By, by the way, 2011, um, like two months before this movie came out, was uh, Silver versus Belfort at UFC 126. Like, yep. that's two fucking hard as nails, scary ass Brazilian dudes kicking the shit out of each other. Could they not have seen those two guys and just gone, you know what? We'll have some of them. Straight we'll in the some movie. Of that. We'll have some of that. And Vandalay as well is a great shout. Mm. Um, right. Uh... Next, I'm trying to think. Like, there's so much to get to in in this movie. Uh, it's part of why we were breaking these well, yeah, out into one I'm, movie per episode. So I would say, like, like you say, it's a big, um, like the big opening scene and stuff straight into the movie. But then the next scene we get really is such a low key banger, like the train heist. Oh, the train heist is great. Uh, oh, that's the thing I wanted to hit on before we we go to the train cool. heist. That like essentially this movie is a two hour chase. Oh yeah, hundred percent. You know what I mean? Because you've got like, um, <laughs> you've got like, you open up with this job that that Jack is about to talk about. This kind of like side hustle while they're waiting on on Dom to show up. He had been was he he'd been in Venezuela last they heard, and he was coming down to meet yeah, them. Yeah, Venezuela, Ecuador, I believe, was the other country they mentioned. Yeah. Um, so he was coming down to wait. So they do this like uh, side job that Vince has found, and that gets them tied up with the antagonist of the movie. Um, but so like they're chasing this job and then, um, oh, what is, um, Reyes. So then Reyes is chasing them. And then also that's around the time, like when that worm turns and, and Reyes starts to chase them, that's when the rock arrives on the scene. So it's like, everybody is after them. Uh, and yeah, it's just two hours of like it's it's relentless, and it really this this train heist, Jack, it, it sets the pace. Yeah, it's it's just a really cool um, thing. So like we should say that um, so the reason they end up in Rio is because Vince is there, who's who's Dom's pal, who we saw in the very first Fast and um, Furious movie well, as the meat time. as the meatball guy who uh, starts a fight with Brian um, over Mia, basically. Mm. So there's still kind of like the little bit of low-key animosity uh, between the two of them for, for the majority of, of the film and stuff. So that's why... I don't know why... It's never really explained, I don't think, why why Vince has ended up at Rio or what he's doing there, but but that's kind of where he is. And uh, yeah, for to make a bit of money... Vince sets them up with this job for Reyes to uh, to steal these cars from a moving train in a very sort of old school highwayman type thing, but like in a modern thing. And I've got to be honest, lads, this is this is me me being bearing my soul here. I love a scene on a train in a movie. I don't know what it is about train scenes. Like it's the confined spaces. And like the the, the high speed movement and yeah. the, the fact that, you know, there's no veering off left, left or right. You know, yeah. this train is going straight and no matter what, it's going to at some stage end up in sort of negative consequences. If you're chasing it or people are being thrown through windows and shit, it's awesome. Yeah. So it's uh, 
it's Dom and Vince and Brian and Mia, and they're all trying to take these cars out of these trains because Reyes has paid them off. And we uh, we find out very quickly that it's one car in particular. It's like a GT40, I think, that that they want to steal, and that's the really important one. And then we find out eventually why. I don't know if anyone else wants to pick up on the mantle on that. But yeah, this, this kind of... I'm not sure where... Um, this was actually filmed because I know um, Chris, you said most of it was uh, Puerto Rico, but this kind of like massive open plains and badlands. Is there lots of areas like this in, in Brazil as a, as a person of Brazilian mm, ignorance? Not entirely. For the most part, there are certain areas in the country that I think you could pull that off, but I don't think they pulled that particular scene. I believe that one was filmed specifically in Atlanta is where they went to for that or around that specific area because they had the train yard look and everything else to do. Uh, the high, uh, and then the high scene, I just found uh, that out. That was filmed in Rice, California over three weeks. Yeah. So they definitely had a lot of like barren land to work with on that front. Um, the other big thing that comes to mind is, well, when it comes to summarizing the events in Brian relationship, and we have to take this back all the way to the first movie, it's the bullshit. Nobody likes the tuna here in wine. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it's that to this day still with the two of them where there's still that apprehension for Vince because at the end Brian was a cop he was right about him that entire time and Dom took Brian's side over his so it's just like Vince ended up being kind of an on the run yeah. guy because he had that the ties to the Toretto Toretto like street gang that was robbing DVDs and shit which yeah I, I caused felt- them to flee the country on that point i feel really bad for vince in this movie because it's almost kind of like there's like this unrequited love of like vince clearly sees dom as like one of his best mates but he kind of chose brian over vince really and has a closer relationship with brian but like you know we'll get into it maybe a little bit later in the movie but there's one moment of something he says to him like oh my god this is a guy that's kind of lived his entire life thinking that you know he's best pals of this guy who no, it doesn't almost like doesn't feel like reciprocal feelings for from from Dom towards Vince in this movie. Poor old Vince. So this uh this train scene has like some incredible moments in it. Whether it's like the um, I love the the ripping of the side of the car. I love the like attaching the little platform to the side to mm-hmm. like yank the car out of the train onto the little flatbed and drive away. Um, it's great stuff, but um. Ultimately, this leads to the the first confrontation with Reyes, where it appears not all uh, is what it seems with these cars that they were trying to boost, and he really wants them. Uh, and this makes a very inquisitive Dom, who, by the way, showed up in this chase scene to save the day, uh, very dramatically, as only Dominic Toretto can. Um it leads him to kind of write, we need to have a look at this car because there's something in it. And like, I know the first time I saw this movie, I was like, oh, are they going to go like really stereotypical South American bad guy? And it's just going to be wall to wall heroin packed into the, the inside of these cars. But thankfully, they went a much more fast and furious route and they went with a microchip that can do incredible things. Yeah, a microchip that contains all of the information of all of Reyes's. It just basically sounds like his entire business operation was on this microchip and the location of all of his secret stashes of money which yeah. really did beg the question how did that end up on a, on a microchip in a car in the back of this train like yeah. what what like what series of events led it to this point i'd like to mm. know 
But yeah, that's a, that's an incredibly careless thing to lose, I would say. Yeah. Um, and so it's around now, Chris, that like, you know, we've kind of set up that kind of um, the A plot, the the kind of like confrontation between those two forces. And now we get our boy Dwayne coming in. And I got to say, this is one of like the most badass introduction to a franchise moments of all time. The Rock getting off the 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 plane it looked like the man had been in mid-stride since he got on the plane in the u.s and just kept like power walking around the plane, <laughs> yeah, he's the the plane door so i can like walk out with just came out purpose. with the guys around him and yeah this is a real um this is a real powerful first scene with him um what what did you make uh, of this the the introduction of luke hobbs because i fucking lose my mind every time yeah, it, it very much just reminds you specifically of a super intense worker that's finally hitting the territory and has been pacing around like a caged animal just yeah. looking to be unleashed at that particular point. Biggest plot point to keep in mind, too, is that during that whole train chase scene that three DEA agents were killed by Reyes's men, but yeah. that gets pinned on Toretto and Brian and Mia. Mm-hmm. So that makes them like number one targets for the yeah. DSS, which is where Rukov's works for. And then they bring him in. He's kind of laying down the law of the land. And as soon as he basically touches, touches down at that point, yeah. talking to the Brazilian like military police guy and mentioning, hey, these are the things that I'm going to be needing. My team's going to be running point at this point. You guys just stay the absolute hell out of our way. And hey, this particular patrolman rookie person here, I want her on my team as an interpreter in this case. And they're like, well, we have more experienced interpreters. I'm like, no, run her, uh, go, uh, go on with it, get it done kind of thing. Yeah. And then just and set, then, sets it off. And then ending the scene with the, like, uh, the epic line, uh, which is amazing, where like uh, the guy takes his notes about you know hiring the interpreter that he wants. Uh, and then the dude says to, to Hobbs, anything else? And he goes, yeah, stay the fuck out of my way. Dropping, is it the series first F-bomb? I believe it would. I think I it is, it yeah. Was, yes. Yeah. yeah. And it's one of those things where to keep the, the 12 or 15 search, whichever it was on, I think you're only allowed one F-bomb, aren't you? Yeah. And like, that was like a, a precision guided F-bomb. I, I will say the best thing here, right? Every movie The Rock does and kind of most of the roles he's doing, he always has like knowing smirk. There's always a little bit of The Rock's kind of charisma. And this is the first time you really just saw like, because that was always his character in wrestling. Like he was never the scary big man who was going to try and beat you. Like he was always the stylish cocky prick that people ended up falling in love with. Mm. Here, it's just the deadpan Here's what I want. You give me these fucking guys. I want this woman as an interpreter. Stay the fuck out of my way. There's not like a knowing smirk cracked on his face at any point. He is just full. I am Dwayne Johnson. I am a badass motherfucker. And I'm here to find some people who have killed my DEA agents. And that that is awesome because it's just, it's so unlike any of the sort of smirky stuff that he'd ever done up to this point, I would say. Yeah. Um, I... <laughs> He is immediately from this, and I know this is the third time I'm hitting it, but like as soon as he gets out of the plane, he is drenched. (laughs) (laughs) Like, yeah, I I can't get over it. Like, in these films, like, obviously, like every rock film, the man is like he's he's oiled up and he's ready to go, and you're accentuating what a man mountain he is. 
but like my god he is like every scene it's like he's just jumped in a swimming pool yeah. and like i know <laughs> like half of it is definitely like him spraying himself down beforehand to look more intense but you know a good half of it as well is like him being as large and beefy a man as he is mm. being in very humid climates exactly like, yeah it's a, it's a it's it's very easy to just get like dreads at that point in time in particular and i think it shows up even more considering you know he's rocking you know the ball head at that point and everything else in between so it's just like well uh yeah this is gonna happen it's gonna be glistening uh just get used to it we're gonna be yeah. seeing this for a while because that's something as well um, that's worth noting about The Rock is that like as 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 you know as as well defined as he was as a wrestler, the man has ballooned to about twice the size since, like a supernatural level of beef. Uh, I mean, that's part of the job at this point for him. Like, it is part of the job to work out as like as much as he does and get as beefy as humanly possible for these roles. Yeah, yeah. so I get it. I you really can't do. wrestle in that condition. Like you need to have that level yeah. of agility or whatever. Yeah. But I mean, can. remember, like when he tried to do his first first match with Cena, looking like that, and he tore like nearly every muscle in the upper half yeah. of his body mm-hmm. in a twenty minute yeah. match. Pretty and I think much. most of them were torn on that like rock bottom at the end because didn't he oh, like, tear yeah. both pecs just doing the rock bottom? I fully believe it. What yeah. A... Oh my god. It's a, um when when I look at him, I just think of that one moment from uh, the Simpsons where Homer's trying to uh, trying to get all the grease in Springfield, and he's looking yeah. at that guy in the Krusty Burger like the teen kid, and he's like, "My God, you're greasy." <laughs> what do we think of the like the the jet black goatee beard situation he's got rocking here? It, it's a good heel goatee. Like yeah. th- again, like it, you can tell from the persona, like this ain't your this ain't your daddy's rock. Like this is a badass, scary rock who's not here to play and have fun. And I think not only that persona kind of comes out for him, but I think the goatee, it just makes him look like ten percent more of a twat. I think, <laughs> <laughs> but like, in- <laughs> but like intentionally, you know, yeah. like just to make him look like a little bit more of an evil version of himself. Like, I know for a while, like, in, in WWE, when he was meant to be a heel, didn't he have a similar, like, goatee situation? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think, a go- like, as I sit here with a goatee, I do always say, like, if, if anyone who's never seen me with yeah. it before, I always think it makes me look like the evil version of me. Yeah. Or the like, French version. Like, like, Jack whacked on the video on his, on his Zoom, and I was like, what a prick. Yes, yeah. <laughs> it's totally fair. And, yeah. yes, I... It normally I, it takes me a good five to ten seconds to say what a prick. Yeah, yeah. So it's a, it's a, it's at least twenty three seconds on average the amount of time people take to realize I'm a prick. And the goatee, <laughs> so it just it cuts straight to the chase. It yeah, lets the goatee know right away. And the uh, the the room adorned with Chelsea crests uh, is a real double whammy <laughs> for me. <laughs> oh, uh, uh, you mean uh, double European champions, Chelsea? Ah, yeah, oh, here he is. Here he is. Here yeah, he is. yeah, yeah. That is uh, that is the case. Um, so. Uh, where do we go to next? Because I kind of like, I don't want to just like be tedious and just go straight through the film beginning to end, well, but I also don't want to miss anything. Well, I mean, we kind of, we kind of got started on it uh, next, but like going from this, obviously there's like little bits of kind of um, filler dialogue here and there, but the next big point is the fucking rooftop chase scene, <sighs> which to this day, I think is one of the coolest uh, Fast and Furious scenes ever. Mm. It's the, the fact that you've got, 
like you said, Dave, from start to finish, this is a chase for Dom and the gang. They're normally the aggressors, but they're not the aggressors in this movie. They are constantly trying to escape and figure out ways of tight spaces. But you have simultaneously Reyes's crew and the aforementioned meaty, greasy, bearded man, Hobbs, turning up at the same time, which is really fucking inconvenient to both hunt them down. And then you get the just insane running across rooftops and just manic in like the favelas of, of, yeah. of Rio de Janeiro. And it's just so cool. So good. <laughs> the favelas of quote unquote Rio de Janeiro. Of, of, of Puerto Rico <laughs> rather than Rio de Janeiro. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> so so I, this I, is also, I'm yeah. oh, sorry, real quick. And on top of that too, this is also just as they discover what was inside of that car that they took off of the car chasing, which was the microchip revealing all the locations of Reyes's like cash stances, everything in between. So it's setting up the plot that is they're just like, there's a lot of money on the line here, and certain people want it, <laughs> and yeah. then certain people want them, thinking that they're you know murderers for something else that happens. Is it, entirely, is it so. here also that we discover? Yeah, it is here that we also discover that uh, Vince knew more about the job than he was letting on, and yeah. basically put them in harm's way. And this is. Uh, Vince, his childhood best friend, just telling him to get out because, like, he nearly got Mia killed and himself. And, Mia, and of course, Mia being pregnant at this point. Too, yeah, we've that it's been hinted at. Yeah. We found out that she's pregnant, and I wonder if she knew she was pregnant when she was doing all this heist yeah. shit and like smashing up prison buses <laughs> and uh, flying, <laughs> flying around Rio and trains and shit the coldest part of this like falling out between Vince and Dom is the bit where like Vince gets indignant and just says, where's Letty Dom? I was like, Oh, you don't say that. You don't yeah. say that to the man. Um, This is a bit of the emotion that I mean from Vince here. Like he yeah. clearly feels burned by the fact that him and Dom aren't busy mates anymore. And that he's chosen the side with Brian now. Uh, like, and yeah, that is just an absolute dagger in the heart moment. And then, what I like is Don just kind of sends him away like he's a kid going to going to bed before his dinner. He's just like, get the fuck out of here, just get out. And and, <laughs> yeah. and, and Vince actually goes as well. So yeah, and then and then all hell breaks loose across the rooftops of Rio. Yeah. Um so I, I love one of my favorite parts about this scene, like apart from all of it, is uh Hobbs showing up. And like the locals are obviously protective of the boys and they're not going to let um, the, the feds pass uh, and go hunting through the place to find Dom and the guys. But then um, <laughs> Hobbs pulls out what becomes in, in this franchise for him, his signature Desert Eagle, which I'm sure like based on the, the, the size of Dwayne Johnson and the size <laughs> of Batman's hands, I'm sure that like this is a Desert Eagle the size of a minivan. Uh, that he pulls out and you just get one look at it and they're like, all right, okay. And they all like part like the Red Sea. Um, but Chris, something interesting I've thought about, like, whereas like, you know, this uh, chase and then the kind of like the, the high scene at the end are two of the most iconic um, like sequences in, in this franchise. And to a fault almost, because I feel particularly with this chase, not so much with the end one, I feel like in subsequent movies, they've got themselves in a loop of trying to top that chase. And I think in some of their final scene uh, climactic chases, they've managed to equal, you know, yeah. the, 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 the stuff with the vault in this. 
I don't think they've ever, they've tried so many times and I don't think they've ever captured what they captured in this favela chase. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's just, it's the fact that they did it for the first time. And I think the fact that they nailed one of the few times in which I think that particular crew has felt vulnerable. And of course, keep in mind too, that it was only three of them. And it wasn't the entire gang together, which leads into a point that we'll talk a little more into detail as we're going through the movie itself. But it caught them at a very vulnerable moment where you sort of realize that A, the henchmen of the main baddie in the story were not fucking around by any means yeah. uh, informed. And most importantly, Luke Hobbs wasn't fucking around because he yeah. found them quick. Yeah. And you knew at that point, like the guy is like a legitimate hunter and that's the reason why they call him in to do these sorts of jobs. So it established the threats and it put the heroes kind of on the back foot really for... Yeah. It put him on the back foot more than I think we saw in any of the uh, previous movie, where we always thought that, hey, they always had somewhat of an edge when going into these particular things. Like they felt legitimately like, oh, these guys could actually get caught here, and then we gotta yeah. figure out how they're gonna get out. So. This is like uh, maybe one or two films before they get so cartoonishly indestructible that it becomes a a subplot in the ninth one, um, how indestructible they are. So you do feel, I, I totally I totally agree with you there, that you do feel there's more serious stakes involved. And they've already, in such a short amount of time, done a, a really good job of making Hobbs this threat to them that you would believe this dude is going to catch these guys and, and, and put them down. Um, what what do you like, uh, Jack? I suppose we've heard uh, the least from you on, on the favela chase. Uh, what what are your takes on it? It is, I think, for most people, like in the the Champions League spots of the the greatest chases in the whole franchise. Yeah, it's it's really good. It's it's a lot of kinetic energy. It's kind of like I say, the three different factions all coming together, and two of them trying to get one of one of them down. Um, mm. I think probably the most important moment in the chase that um, we haven't mentioned yet is the fact that even though Eleanor, uh, Elena, sorry, is hunting down Dom um, with Hobbs and stuff, he manages to save her life at one point. Uh, and that kind of sparks uh, the sort of two film romance between the two of them in, in that moment, um, which is, which is really cool. Like she, mm-hmm. he sort of like pulls her out of the way and pulls her to one side. And yeah, yeah from that moment on, like she's kind of, you know, on the hook a little bit for Dom, uh, yeah. as, which is an effect I would imagine I mean, he has only on, human. on most, if not all women and, and men. And yeah, I was going to say just people. Just generally, yeah, just the sort of magnetic presence <laughs> of him. Um, So we then kind of like, you know, after we've had this chase scene and after the threats become very apparent to the gang and after we've lost Vince from the Familia, um. Dom essentially makes the command decision that that we need to take the fight to Reyes and the guys. And for that, we're going to need a team. Cue your Avengers montage. Um, And this is like we've had, you know, uh, we talked about it, how four was the first time where you had a kind of like a little microcosm version of this, especially like with the introduction of Giselle. And, you know, it was more... um, 
it was the first film that was really good at honoring the films that came before it. But this is the one where it's like, we're just going to wacky town and just bringing everyone the fuck back. So we get a montage here with um, Sung Kang straight away. Han, number one guy you want to get involved here. So hyped. Um, you get... Um, uh, Leo and Santos coming in. You get Roman Pierce returning. You get uh, Ted returning. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Occupational <laughs> hazard. Uh, and then finally as well, kind of like uh, teased with her helmet on, you, you see her last is the, the return of Giselle uh, Gal Gadot. And um, this, is, this is a cool montage because I, this is where I was just like, I noticed... Um, to give uh, props for a minute to our boy Paul Walker this is the first film where I noticed his acting has like notably improved I think the last mm-hmm. couple of films he was in he really like actually started to show some some range and like he wasn't just like particularly in Too Fast Too Furious I felt sometimes he was like almost rolling his eyes at <laughs> like what the fuck is going on here whereas now he's like he's fully bought in and he's a more believable character whereas I think this is the first one where I think Dom's kind of going the other way, where it feels like, I don't know, like, God bless the man. I love Vin Diesel. Don't get me wrong. But a lot of a lot of his dialogue in this film, I don't know whether it's the ADR on it or whatever, but it feels like he's being Grand Moff Tarkin'd into this film sometimes in scenes <laughs> where it's just like he's not really there. And it's a composite of things he said in other places because um, he's just like, I don't know, with his little wry Vin Diesel smile listing off the people they'll need. And then he goes, we need two precision drivers. <laughs> I um... like the more wooden part of it, for sure, out of that particular sequence of the movies. Yeah. It's just, it might have been either they shot it way too early in the morning, or it might have been like some of the first shots that they did from the film, yeah. too, and they had to kind of settle back into the rules. You just don't know, for sure. Yeah, or it could be one of those ones where it's like, oh, we never properly explained why we're getting everyone back together. So it's like the last thing they shot. And it's uh, just like, yeah, and at that it. point, they're just, they're just beat. Because yeah. for events specifically, he's already acting in a movie. He's also producing on top of it, too. So he's just like, you know what? Let's just... Yeah, there's like two scenes in this where I'm just like, could they not have asked Vin for another take? And one of them is this. And and the answer is no, by the way. Yeah. You you don't get a second take from the Vin man. Yeah, yeah. But this is this is the this is the main one. Um yeah, so the team gets together, and this is like where a lot of these later movies shine is the interplay between um the characters that we we have come to know and love and particularly like hitting it off straight away with that on-screen chemistry is Tyrese and uh, your boy Luda, Jack. Yep. Uh, they form quite the comedy partnership and it's not like we're still maybe one to two films away from Tyrese being full cartoon character. There's like yeah. still a bit of the, the old kind of like suave Roman Pierce yeah. uh, in this, but there's definitely some um like cartoonish buffoonery here in this i i do love the line back and forth they have at each other where it's like uh what is it uh tyree says to to tej as he's driving in he's just like when uh, are you gonna give martin luther king his car back yeah and, and he says as soon as you give rick james his jacket back, <laughs> jacket back. <laughs> yep 
that is that is the up to that point that they were the best lines in the whole goddamn movie yeah i love the relationship between these two i just think they're hilarious uh and yeah it did it, it did become a gimmick of just tyrese every film they just take 10 more iq points off off him basically yeah. <laughs> it just becomes dumber and dumber and Tedge goes in the opposite direction where he then becomes like the greatest technologist yeah. of all Although time. the hilarious part of it too is that there was a particular line that referenced that where they were like, wait, when did you get so good with computers and Tej just going, I had a life before you met me, Brian. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I, I, just... I almost would love that you went completely to radio because like, like I took some night classes. Play <laughs> being the greatest hacker in the world all of a sudden what would be amazing though is if like roman is like you know they walk in on him doing a ballroom dance or something and he's like i had a life before you don and what his <laughs> life before was like a sort of dancing with the stars-esque yeah. <laughs> performer at all times but yeah i uh i do love the interplay for these guys do you know there was like a really i was when i was researching the movie there was like a really interesting fact that came across was like um gal gadot's character giselle like no one mentions her name at any point or calls her Giselle in this movie so like the only way you would know so like if this is the first time you saw this movie yeah. what she was called would be if you saw her name in yeah. the credits and, next to the name Giselle and that hits on one of my talking points I have here my notes that I want to talk about is that like so I've always maintained that like I don't think Gal Gadot is a very good actress but I think the she has been cast at perfectly in two roles and that is this and uh wonder woman as well i i don't think she's been in anything else where i'm just like oh yeah she's got some chops it's uh what people might call january jones syndrome where like she's unreal in mad men and then you see her in other things you're like wow where did where did that phenomenal actor go you know um but this is the, the 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 tidbit you had there about her name uh goes to that talking point which is this is the most she is put in this film for the lads to have a look at yeah it feels real like oh <laughs> there's real... a real eye candy sensation thing going on here isn't that yeah i, I mean, mean like and, the, and, first, and was defense... it the first thing that roman pierce says to her is like nice legs baby what time do they open yeah oh yeah uh, she puts yeah. him down real quick on it which is good but at the same time you're like Guys, yeah, a little more tact. Maybe yeah. I know it's 2011, but yeah, yeah. I, I think feel, um, I, I feel it's weird big... because like Lei and Mia and like they don't really talk to them like that at any point during the movie. No. But like Gal Gadot, they're just like you know what we are just happy to use her as eye candy at <laughs> I, this point. But I also get the feeling that like uh, Michelle Rodriguez is the type of person that even in a scene, if you talked her like that, she'd fucking, <laughs> she'd yeah. fucking floor you. Yeah, rightfully so. As <laughs> yeah, well. rightfully so. Yeah. Um, I feel like they do kind of reel back on that, thankfully, like uh, within a couple of films. Like, not that she, it, like, not that they ever stop seeing her as eye candy to a certain extent, but they certainly give her more to do and flesh her out a bit more. Because, like, her one contribution as well, because so they're, they, yeah, we'll, we'll look, we'll, we'll get to that other scene where they definitely use her as something for the lads um, in a second. But what they, they do now, they have the team together and the plan is to go and, like, attack this guy's assets. And I love the scene where they go to the first stash house. Yeah. Um, which is awesome. Um, 
there's this moment where like the guy in the, who's running the stash house for Reyes says to to Dom is like, uh, we're gonna uh is it like something about him hiding? And uh, he takes off his balaclava and just shows his face and he's like, Who's hiding? And he goes, You know who you're stealing from? And then he opened because there's a big stack of money on the table that they've gathered. And he's, You know who you're stealing from? And then he opens a can of petrol. He goes, We ain't stealing. Yeah. And sets it all ablaze. It's like, I want you to tell your boss exactly who did this. And Chris, this, this is just like part of that, like we talked at the start, that con- constant kinetic energy of this movie. Uh, but it, it's class because, as we talked about in the favela scene, they've been on the back foot for most of this plot so mm-hmm. far and seeing them like get more assertive and and be the gang the familia we all want to see it's it, starting with this stash house moment is badass yeah it's the first moment that they sort of get a, a win in the territory if you're book, booking this promotion accordingly this is like the first fiery baby face moment that they get on this whole build up and we know something's coming at one point that there's a big showdown that's going to happen this is just a nice prelude to it kind of saying that they're not on the back foot anymore they're gonna hit back on every one of these safe houses if uh the drug lords of the world aren't careful with them around this they've now got a full roster assembled type of thing which is fantastic on that front so let um uh, let's start building towards that uh iconic uh heist and talk about the vault and, you know, we find out like they've attacked the stash houses, but the big wedge of Reyes, Reyes's wealth is stored in this preposterous high-tech vault. This mini Fort Knox of a vault. And they need uh, greatest hacker in the history of the Earth, Tej, and, and his know-how to, to help them get into it. And something they need, you know, as part of the, they're kind of like explaining the things people need to do. So if we're going to do this heist, we need a car that can drift around corners so fast that it can like outrun the CCTV so that we can't, we're not seen. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing they need, they need Reyes's fingerprints. Yeah. And things I liked about this, um, the fingerprint bit is we're getting to see Han and, and Giselle, who, like, obviously, there's... A, from the moment Giselle walks in, there's that, like, moment of, like, uh, the kind of spark in Han's eyes, you know? Yeah, he actually stops putting food in his mouth, which yeah, is a for once. Bad. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and I like the interplay between the two of them, like, right before the uh, something for the lads moment starts. Yeah, which I thought was a great bit of character development where they sort of explained both of their backgrounds with Hannah kind of identifying that she was Mossad pretty much yeah. like an Israeli agent all this time and that's how she's like a weapons expert and then Giselle picking up on uh, Han's old smoking habit from Better Luck Tomorrow which yeah. was uh, the first Justin Lin movie that him and Sun Kang worked on together and that he brought the Han character mm-hmm. from so it was a nice tidbit of like two characters sort of playing yeah. like a cat and mouse game with each other to yeah. an extent and that spark kind of getting attracted before Han sort of realizing like we're not going to get any closer to this guy from just staying here yeah. and then so they're at like an outdoor like, cafe like cafe, cafe thing. yeah um by the pool and yeah um they're trying to get into Reyes to get like lift his fingerprints off at glass or anything like that and like you said uh Chris like 
Honda says, I don't think we're getting any closer to him. And she says the line that like, don't send a man to do a woman's job. And then she stands back from the table, drops her, her towel or her sarong, I think it is, isn't it? Um, and reveals that she is in a very complimentary bikini and uh, kind of like the slow motion camera and the music and the whole lot. And then the gratuitous zoom in as Reyes like uh, grabs a handful of arse uh, as she sits down with him is just like, yeah, it's the, in 2011, uh, knowing their audience, like this is what they did, but like looking at this with 2021 eyes, little bit uncomfortable as well a little bit uncomfortable but at the very least you know with this particular scene it wasn't like a guy sort of initiating the grossness it was more so her being assertive about it and going oh this is the way we're going to be able to get those friends so doing it on on her on her terms and viewing it through the lens of like her knowledge that men are pigs i think redeems it a good bit Mm -hmm. um I would say that it's quite a funny Luda's follow-up where it's like, did he smack that ass or did he grab it? Was yeah. he made me laugh. <laughs> what a line. No, no, I, no, the best part of it is that he says it and then him and Roman are like, yeah, <laughs> to each other and just start slapping each other. Amazing. <laughs> just fucking children. Oh, the by, the, by the way, I, I can't help but feel like in 2021, we would not have any references to Mossad in this yeah. movie. Uh, especially no. with her. Uh, yeah. Given her, oh, yeah. her public what, statements what over the last number of years, and she might want to. Yeah, what's been happening in 2021 as well? Yeah. I, I, that 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 made me just a tiny bit uncomfortable hearing that. Uh, yeah. I was like, Whoa. Smish. Smish. yeah. Um, I also love the other. I thought the line you were going to for was the one that Roman says, like when they come back with the bikini bottoms and like just throw them onto the uh onto the table where uh fucking uh <laughs> Roman just goes, "Han, I thought you were more of a thong man." <laughs> just rolls his eyes. Uh, I just, I he gets the best lines in this uh, by a long way. I uh, wasn't that was like the thing where it's, it's like splitting up when they were talking about splitting up the money, and he's like, "Oh, eleven million dollars sounds like a whole lot of vaginal activity to me," and I was like, <laughs> "Okay," and that absolutely knocked me out. But yeah, I just, mm. I don't think. I just yeah I I don't think the, the chemistry of the gang works without somebody who's there just to have a bit of a laugh and I do think this this film and subsequent films benefit massively from from what they do with Roman's character and it all starts in this movie. Yeah. Um so Jack I'll tell you what since since you were talking there do you want to be the steward to guide us through the the geography of this heist? Well, I think the important thing to say before we get to the heist is that The Rock, obviously, Hobbs, his team captures uh, Dom and Brian, uh, and I think Mia as well, at one point, and uh, Reyes's gang attack them and take out some of Hobbs's agents. Uh, and it's at that moment that Hobbs decides, after they uh, after they kind of come to Hobbs's defense that moment that Hobbs decides that he's going to turn baby face and work with the gang and I think that's like a really important moment in the movie but yeah the uh, the idea of the heist is that by burning the cash uh, in that one stash house Reyes decides to relocate all of his money by the way the logic not great but Reyes decides to relocate all of his money into one central safe 
um, so that they can't get at it. But that safe happens to be inside of a police station. So then the plan is that they're going to attach wires on muscle cars to the safe and drag it out of the police station, um, which is is quite the plan that is hatched. And it yeah, leads to... <laughs> Go on. Yeah, yeah, they had to figure out a lot of logistics in terms of how they were going to do that with yeah. certain scenes having Leo Santos getting involved with like being uh, disguised as plumbers at one point to get into the system after setting up a bomb that pretty much just exploded the entire like bathroom system and the like. Uh, having like a full montage of cars and running like a mock track course inside of a huge warehouse just to see if they could beat out like the police cameras changing, mm-hmm. interchanging between every 10 seconds kind of thing. So there's a lot of moving pieces here that eventually yeah. get that set up to where they have to go to that extreme, including ordering a safe exactly like the one that is there just to yeah. see if they could crack it to begin with, I, with, I, with I, the I, fingerprints, honestly, but. I love before before I defer back to Jack. Uh, I love, um, you know, they say, and I think we might have said it on on this podcast before that, like all heist movies are metaphors for the process of filmmaking, and that's what I love about like uh, them doing this, yeah, the the dry runs and you know seeing if they can do it beforehand because I feel like it's almost a commentary on how difficult it is to pull this physical stunt off and showing that like it really takes a village and everybody being very precise to pull something like this off just as a filmmaking process, let alone actually within the the fictional world of the film. So I always appreciate that shit. Yeah, definitely. I should mention as well that. Uh... During kind of the 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 rescue um, of well of the escape of kind of the gang and the rescue of Hobbs from uh, Reyes's men, that Vince ends up taking a bullet at one point and passing mm-hmm. away, uh, which is you know after he kind of like redeemed himself earlier by helping Brian and Mia escape in the rooftop scene, um, and it's kind of tough to lose him. And he mentions to Dom that he named his son after him. And it was at that moment that I realized I was like, oh man, like Dom is this guy's idol and he basically <laughs> has been ignoring him ever since he met his new pal, Brian. Uh, and yeah, I just, I felt, I don't know, I just felt very sorry for Vince uh, in that moment. I felt like it was a, it was a good like death scene and it was a good way for him to go out and stuff. But God, yeah, it just made me feel quite, quite, like quite a harsh treatment this guy managed to get in the movie. But the, I mean, the dragging of the vault through the streets. I mean, proper, like the first, I would say like, obviously we'd had, you know, kind of moments of unrealistic this, that and the other, but it was the first proper, right, turn your brain off, just enjoy what Mm -hmm. you're seeing and the pure absurdity of it as they're kind of slamming through buildings and smashing the vault into cars and just weaving in and out of traffic in Rio de Janeiro like I don't know how busy the streets of Rio de Janeiro are Chris but I feel like something like this happening is probably quite unlikely yeah 100% like any major metropolis in Brazil in terms of driving and the like is a nightmare traffic wise and I say somebody who comes from Sao Paulo who's experienced that Firsthand, I'm pretty sure Rio is no different on their front when it comes to their major highways and the like. The other big thing for me is that in particular, the cars that they had to use for getting the uh, wires done and actually removing the giant safe out and dragging it through the streets, 
these had to be police cars that they had to go in and rob out of under the police's nose at that. And it led to a really fun scene before the kind of the calm before the storm situation in which it had Roman, uh, Han, Brian, and Dom, all four of them taking those cars and then deciding, hey, quarter mile race, 100K on the line. And then with Han kind of going, I'm like, we might not live to see tomorrow, make it a million. And then just (laughs) having like a fun little race moment between just four lads having the best time between them, which was... A fun, a fun little prelude for things to come there as well. Mm. Yeah, it's yeah. I, it, it, all of the characterization, like I mean, we can't really do it enough justice because it's the moments in between the big set pieces in this movie that kind of make it x x more likable. Mm-hmm. So like, I don't feel like up to this point, you know, again, probably the best stuff that we got. I reckon, and and it's why I kind of like um, too fast, too furious. Even if you guys aren't massive on it. Um, like you know the roman moments and stuff in that movie between him and brian but uh this is the first film where we really uh, everybody opens up everybody just starts enjoying themselves everybody's getting into it and having a good time and you're right that is a cool scene it was very reminiscent of the of the scene in gone in 60 seconds dave to drop another yeah. uh another reference into a great car movie that we both love uh, where they kind of break up some of the the cars out of the the police pound in that movie too uh but yeah, yeah. i do, i do you know what i just don't with the with the 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 safe dragon scene like i just i don't know how you could ever do that justice just describing the the mayhem of the whole thing uh it's just one of those things that has to be seen i think to be believed what they do in that scene it's 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 incredible yeah um it's just i i like i'm i am at a loss for superlatives for for us it's just like it feels like the grand announcement of this franchise's arrival to a next level is what it is for me it just feels like these are now the best action movies on the block and you're just gonna have to live with that guys Mm -hmm. yeah for sure um and like after all the mayhem I've got to say that like two of my favorite moments in the movie come back to back when you have like within the space of like a minute to 30 seconds, the destruction of the main henchman and main bad guy in the movie in two just brilliant casual moments of gunplay. Uh, when they when Reyes and Zizi both go down and just the fucking scenarios that they go down in the first one like once they've kind of you know reached the pinnacle and the the zenith of this of this chase and you know the the safe gets wedged in and they get stuck kind of on a bridge uh, and everybody catches up with everybody and the cars kind of all get smashed up and taken out and then you have Zizi like the main henchman for for Reyes comes out of the car. And Dom is just standing there. Uh, he's just looking at him. He's just mean mugging him. And this guy has like a loaded gun pointing at him. And I mean, at this point, I'm like, does Dom know that Brian is behind him with a gun cocked? Because I feel like in his head, he feels like mean mugging Zizi is enough <laughs> for him to survive in this moment. And he's just staring a fucking hole through him. And then Brian comes and shoots Zizi and kills him, obviously, because he's about to shoot Dom. And then he was just, and then he turns around to Brian and he's like, Oh, I thought you were like, you know, back doing this. And and he's like, Oh, no, I caught up with you or whatever he says. Yeah, because like, yeah, 
Don sent Brian away at that point to escape yeah. while he still had the safe and used that to take out all of the yeah. other cars. So, so exactly, it's... yeah. And and I'm like, so Don's plan was mean mugging this guy to death <laughs> at that point. And then you get the moment of Reyes. Reyes is injured, possibly fatally, but we're not really sure. But he sort of busts out of his car door. And at this point, Luke Hobbs has caught up with everyone. Now, normally the death of a bad guy in a movie like this is some like ridiculous kind of, you know, going up in flames, explosion. They're crushed by something giant. They fall off a really high thing. And, you know, like you think Alan Rickman in Die Hard or whatever, falling backwards out of Nakatomi Plaza. But no, the main bad guy in Fast Five, as he's kind of lying semi-injured and prone on the ground, The Rock just walks up, walks along, aims a gun into his face, shoots him twice while he's on the ground, and then just says, that's my my team, you son of a bitch, and then walks up to Tom and Brian, and you're like, okay, so he just killed the main bad guy in like a, just the most casual way. He doesn't even look at him, he's just like double tap shot while he was on the ground. And I just at that point I was like, "Fuck, man, that is just the coolest way of taking someone out in one of these movies." Literally, not an element of fuss or fury about it. Just double tap to the head. That's for my just, team, you son, bitch. Yep, it's just proof of the heel stables hubris here uh, with Reyes's gang thinking because they ran stuff all over the streets of Rio that they could take on everybody involved, which included, you know, killing off federal agents, which were had just so happened to be Hobbs's entire team, as a matter of fact, before Dominic, uh, you know, um, and within that entire crew, the Familia itself, kind of saving Hobbs's ass, and that's this sort of way of, like, not only paying him back for it, but also getting his own, like, pound of flesh for something that, for men that he felt responsible for, which is also kind of shows, like, his sense of duty, like, as a person overall, and you kind of realize, okay, there's layers to this guy other than just him being like a practical, like Marsh, Martian the Manhunter kind of guy, where he's just like <laughs> chasing people down and, you know, bringing them into justice kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Um, I just, yeah, I, I love this this whole bridge scene, this whole climax of this, because after all the mayhem, it's just like a real straightforward, like gunplay moment. Um, and it just kind of has the right impact. And then it's the face off between. Hobbs and Brian and Dom he's caught up with them but like even he in this moment where he kind of should be arresting them kind of paralleling the moment from the first movie between Brian and Dom where Brian lets Dom go he's like look I'll give you 24 hours but I'm gonna fucking catch you and I'm gonna get you kind of thing and they're like yeah no problem that's fine and they get in their muscle car and they drive away and then you get the moment where Hobbs sees that they've switched out the safe at some point during the chase and that $100 million is no longer sat in the safe that's wedged in the side of the uh, of the bridge anymore. And yeah, just that like little like wry smile on the rock's face, like, oh, this son of a bitch has got me in this moment. Perfect. <laughs> um, I suppose we'll, we'll kind of um, r- wrap things up. Um, I'll go to both of you, Jack. You you take a breather for a second. We'll we'll go to Chris. You've done Trojan work trying to get yeah. uh, this the central action pieces movie over. Uh, Chris, I suppose any other points you want to hit on before we close it out here yeah. and uh, overall thoughts as well. Once you've hit De- those, yeah, definitely. I do think one other thing that we sort of paled over because there's been like smaller pieces of it, like in between the major set pieces. Yeah. Also there's just be- so much. <laughs> 
Yeah, because there's also the situation with Elena being a part of Hobbes' team and this sort of situation in which you eventually find out that she was this uh, patrol, uh, been this patrol uh, man's uh, wife initially, and that he was murdered in the streets of Rio by allegedly somebody in Reyes' gang was the one who did him in, and her basically swearing into the force as sort of like her own method of trying to get revenge for that, but also having her own sense of like justice and ju uh, justification for the things that she does, and that clashing with uh, Dom at one point because she does take his cross out of the roof. Once the rooftop scene ends there when she thought she had to run a corner, but then they get shot at, Dom escapes, but then he left his uh, silver necklace there that was Letty's, uh, you know, keepsake. Uh, she takes it for herself, wears it for a while, and then Dom realizes that, goes to take it back, and then she's sort of questioning, like, why did you come back for, like, $20 worth of silver? And he's just like, because it's worth it. And then she sort of realizes, oh, you had somebody special taken away from you, too. Trust me, I know the feeling kind of thing. Where So it sort of establishes this odd kinsmanship between the two to where she's questioning her surroundings and going, like, yeah, these guys weren't the ones who did this. They had something to do with Reyes, for sure, in which the team doesn't take all that seriously. Hobbs included them later. Hobbs sort of realizes, like, too little, too late. But yeah, Reyes' guys were the ones who did the DEA agents in and out did his team. And so he's just like, yeah, fuck this. Let's just yeah. catch this little bitch. Uh, Jack, what about you? <laughs> Anything we, we didn't hit on? Uh, no, like, pretty much... Uh... <laughs> I, I, I feel like the one thing that I kind of dug out before the movie is that um, in 2011, it was definitely the year of Tyrese. And I want to give him a shout out because he was filming this and Transformers. Uh, Ooh, yeah, right. Dark of the Moon at the same time and was flying back and forth between Puerto Rico and Atlanta so he could be in both movies. So 2011 was the Tyrese Assance. Ah, uh, it was man. It was the peak year of Tyrese's powers. Um, apart, I guess aside from the movies, the most significant moment in Tyrese's life, other than that, was when he revealed that Dr. Dre was selling uh, beats to Apple on a uh. Facebook live chat at some point <laughs> <laughs> when he was really drunk. Uh, so yeah, I I think 2011 is is the year of Tyrese. Uh, and yeah, Tyrese and Luda obviously yeah. take a big place in my heart i mean honestly one of these that we do honestly for me every year is the year of tyrese damn uh, right although it, it, when you said the year of tyrese the first time i i, I thought it had very year of luigi vibes <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, I mean, I didn't see luigi in in transformers dark of the moon did you <laughs> no no although i'll tell you what i'll, I'll i'd have it yeah. All day, twice that on Sundays. Yeah. Um, so to close things off, our, our final thoughts. Um ranking of the film in terms of the other four that have preceded it, and also before that, ranking of villains with Reyes here. Don't forget that we, we have our ranking of right, villains. Yes, we do. Um, um who wants to go first on this one? I think I'm trying to just, just remember from the previous I, movies how yeah. we. I I, I I suppose I'll 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 go first. Um, seeing as you you guys uh went ahead with the uh with, with the previous segment there, um I wouldn't have Reyes 
bottom necessarily. I still think that honor goes to a uh, too fast, too furious guy whose name I've already mm-hmm. forgotten. Um, Part of Verone, I believe. Part of Verone, yes. yeah. yeah. Um, I'm sorry, I I don't know why, but I am absolutely the higher man on Too Fast Too Furious. <laughs> you absolutely are, because ejecto seat, because yeah. Um, but he might be second from bottom because I feel like some of the stuff that Chris kind of addressed at the start, where like you're hiring the the like shoot portuguese man to do brazilian portuguese and it's very much in spots like a caricature of that kind of like south american kingpin and whereas i feel if we were to say hobbs is an antagonist he'd be much higher like possibly top but Reyes, but this, this starts the gimmick of heel to baby face flips yeah. in these movies from yeah. here on out. So like even by the end, he's sort of flipping. So I don't know if we want to put him on the rankings list. I suppose I'll leave that up to you guys. But I would put Reyes second from bottom because of that. Like I feel the majority of the threat in this film doesn't come from Reyes. No. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I, I agree. The Rock is a much stronger heel presence in this movie. But then that's just because The Rock is like a, a just a generally like larger than life persona and gets a lot more time to kind of develop. Like we don't really, we kind of like peek into like Reyes's affairs and we don't really get like a head to toe of like how he runs his shit, what his operations are. Like we don't get the microchip to see <laughs> what he's doing. So we're just kind of like, okay, this is a horrible human being and yeah. he is, he's got lots of money and he's a bad guy. So we, we're going to take it from him. That's kind of yeah. the most we really get from him. And aside from like him kidnapping them and going to torture them at the start of the movie, that's not really a whole lot of Reyes related activity, just like mm. occasional flashes into him and ZZ trying to, you know, move his cash around yeah. and make sure it's in his police safe. So I agree. I, he does go probably near the bottom for me, but Hobbs, I mean, like if he counters it as a heel, because I mean, what is he like? I would I'd say he wasn't go full face by the end of the movie. He's more of a tweener, right? Because yeah. he yeah. still mm-hmm. is like he's gonna come back for the for the guys like at some point. So he's not properly face. So yeah, yeah. I mean he has to go top, doesn't he? He, yeah. he is mm-hmm. the baddest ass heel at this point in the movie series for yeah. me. Yeah. So for me in particular, I'm ranking Hobbs more so as you mentioned as a tweener anti-hero type. So I'm not including him on this particular tier list, but I would say we have Verone going last still, like on my list, that still hasn't changed for Carter Verone. I would still above, you know, if we're going from least to best, it would be Verone. Johnny Tran would be just right above Verone in this case. Yeah. That's just more so because I, he had one I, or two I, good scenes, but everything else was just sort of there. I wonder, do we bump Johnny, Johnny Tran up? Oh, no, it's not Johnny Tran. It's the guy from, um, sorry, I was thinking the, um, the other guy. Arturo Braga, I'm assuming. No, no. So Braga would have been top before, but um, oh, what's Drift King? Drift King. Takashi the Drift King. Yeah. So I'm gonna, I I definitely, if he wasn't higher on the list, it was gonna bump Takashi up one more because his uncle is Sonny Chiba, who sadly passed away yesterday. So RIP to an absolute king. I I wanted to mention that right at the start of the show and just completely forgot. Yeah. But yeah, I would say for my list in particular, going from least to best, it's still Carter Verone, Johnny Tran. Uh, I would put Reyes basically as the next one. Yeah. Braga right above him just because he had more of like a memorable like 
villain escort where you thought he was the henchman, but turns out he was actually the main baddie all along. And I'd still put, as of right now, Takashi would still be my top one just because he was literally like an antagonistic force from start to finish throughout that entire movie. And you kind of had to see Sean at the time for uh, Tokyo Drift kind of build himself into being enough of a threat to beat the guy and mm. like what was supposed to be like his top tier course and things like that. And there was some villainous enough stuff that they were doing that led to, you know, Han's passing in Tokyo Drift that was partially caused by Takashi. So yeah, he's still oh, on was top it? Exactly. I mean, we'll get to that when we get to that. But boy, I think from this point on is when we're really going to be seeing that villain's list really alter completely with these next couple mm, movies. Yeah. Because we've gotten a couple good ones. Yeah. I should so. also mention like the fact that at this point, we start getting the, the real Marvel-esque shit, which is we get at the end of this movie uh, a mid credit scene. And it's revealed that Ava Mendez, by the way, shows up, which how the hell did they get her to show up for like five minutes to do this? I have no idea why. It wasn't was credited at that too, so keep that yeah. in mind. I bet she probably forgot she was even in <laughs> Too Far Too Furious. It's just like, probably. yeah, sure, I'll turn up to our op- act opposite The Rock. What do you want me to do? Oh, yeah, I was in that thing one time. And uh, yeah, we, we, get, we get a snapshot of Letty. She's, oh, not, she's not gone. She's still here. Dun, and that um, sets up the next movie very, very well. Yeah. Oh yeah. boy! And um, I, I don't remember there being any mid-credit scenes in any of the other movies. No, this really. was this was the first one. We were yeah, that. and yeah. I can only assume that is for like influenced by the uh, we mentioned like Thor came out, but like the sort of uh, Iron Man Hulk uh, mid-credits thing that Marvel had been doing up to this point. Because before, like the list of movies that had mid-credit scenes was like just like Ferris Bueller or whatever that I could think of before where he kind of turns yeah. up and, mm-hmm. at the Let's end. Just keep in mind, at this at this point too, the Marvel Universe is taking off and then only three years after this movie, Vin Diesel would be in Guardians of the Galaxy as the voice yeah. of Groot. So I wouldn't be surprised if he was already getting like the negotiations for that yeah. done or the yeah. way at that, around that time, to be honest. Because this is like, so 20, 2011, this comes out and the Avengers then is, is 2012. So like, that's yeah. kind of like where, okay, we're all doing post-credit scenes now. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> um. But another thing I want to do before we go to the, I, I think it's going to be the least surprising ranking of films so far uh, <laughs> to finish this off. But what I will say is because this is a thing that starts coming uh, through these films now quite thoroughly, I think starting next episode, we will introduce the ranking of MacGuffins uh, because the microchip with the uh, astonishing amount of information that was haphazardly hidden in a car is the first of many ridiculous contraptions and MacGuffins that everyone is pursuing in these films. And boy, howdy, does this seem like a very sober and tame one compared to where we are in, in Fast oh, 9. Oh, sorry. sorry, I just had to sneeze there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh, Chris, ranking of uh, films. <laughs> At this point, yeah, five is on the top of the list. I think it goes without saying. At this point, it does overtake Tokyo Drift for me. Tokyo Drift still comes in as a strong second place for me, then one, then four, then two. Although keep in mind for mine in particular, this is not me saying that I hated four or two in any way, shape or form. It's just most favorite to like, you know, favorites, but not quite compared to like the other ones in terms of the tier. Like 
as far as I can tell, like just through my rewatches so far, I've enjoyed all of these movies yeah. and counting. So yeah. So, and, yeah it's, so- and it's my gimmick on this podcast to drop the elbow on uh on on two anyway. Yeah. I uh my I would swap I would swap four and two. I prefer two to four. <laughs> Because uh, just just because of ejecto seat cars, that's I mean, <laughs> that's fair. Yeah. It did, um, but yeah, the same the same as Chris. I think it goes five. At this point, it's going five. Uh, Tokyo Drift one, uh, two four for me. Yeah, mine would be the, the same order as as Chris. I I would say, um, yeah. which will shock you. I know, Jack. Yeah. Um, but it's just too fast for you all. That's all it was, you know. Yeah. Um. So yeah, this was a, an incredible discussion, lads. I had a great time. Um, before we leave off for um the cast and furious, hit us with your plugs and your links. Um, uh, we'll go first to Jackery. Uh, yep. So at link to the cast is a podcast that I am on with one David Ryan, who is sitting on the Zoom call with me, and one and some Mark, legend, and one Mark Robinson, and we discuss video games and nerd culture ephemera. Uh, our new uh, a new episode is coming out this week where we discuss uh, a little bit of the CM Punk return uh, in amongst it for any fans of wrestling. So anybody that wants to get involved in some of that among some sort of Pokemon news uh, and yeah, a, 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 a little bit of the Suicide Squad because I didn't get a chance to kind of air my thoughts on that having not been on the show for a few weeks. Mm. I'm at Jack Lazell on Twitter. If you want to tell me to fuck off or tell me that you enjoy my stuff, that's that's up to you. You know, that's your prerogative. Uh, and yeah, just generally trying to spread the the positive vibes out there. So good stuff. Uh, check it all out for for us. Uh, Chris, what about yourself? All right, so for me in particular, we'll just start with the simple ones. Twitter, for the most part, is what I use these days, at Brazilian Fury. That's Brazilian with an S instead of a Z. You can find me there for just your usual shit posting about pro wrestling and everything in between. Uh, for podcast-wise, we are on the PWOM Podcasting Network, which you're listening to the show from, but also where uh, I do Strong Style Story with my co-host, Jeffrey Russell, who is a kind of podcasting machine and writing machine in his own right these past couple of months. Human uh, content machine. Pretty much. That, that's the best way of describing them right there. Uh, last episode we did a strong style story it was episode 76 last month where we talked about Russell Grand Summer at the Tokyo Dome and the events that is sort of led in the aftermath and a lot of pandemic talk during the course of Japan and the time of the Olympics coming out, which has been was its own challenges over the last month that we kind of saw. The other podcast that I have it is Soundtracks on the Sticks. We filmed it, uh, and did an episode a couple of weeks back on Mega Man X, but uh, Maya Jordan's personal, excuse me, close and personal friend Phil Now, who's been like a cosplayer and now he's recently gotten into the streaming game as well. Uh, that's over on the Night of the Living Geeks podcasting network, which you can find on notlg.com, or you can also go through their SoundCloud, which is soundcloud.com slash the notlg. And I think that pretty much, like, yeah, oh yeah, sounds on sticks on Twitter for the actual podcast to sound right. Uh, Twitter. Yeah, there you go. Yep. I'm going to also recommend that podcast because I think it's very good. <laughs> hey. um, for me, 
the Twitter at is uh, at the day to Dave. Uh, I am on both the Link to the Cast podcast, which I won't be able to plug any better than Jack did, but also on this very network, I am the, the host of Days of Thunder, the WCW Thunder rewatch podcast that no one asked for, but we did anyway, um, where myself and my co-host Lee Malone watch the entirety of WCW Thunder and the WCW pay-per-views along the way and try to make sense of a company slowly edging towards collapse um episode 45 is the most recent one that came out last week um covering the first thunder of 1999 that um Let's just say, sets the tone for 1999. If you know anything about that year in WCW, you know what I mean by that. Uh, tune in to check that out. Uh, we also have a number of special episodes down the pipes that have been uh, named uh, by uh, kind uh, donations from our listeners to this very network to keep the lights on for another year. Uh, let's just say I haven't told either the lads what those specials are going to be and I'll be keeping the cards close to my chest but we got a couple of fucking doozies that we're going to be doing special episodes on thanks to the listeners um, but in the meantime uh, yeah check out uh, Link to the Cast check out uh, your regularly scheduled episodes of Days of Thunder and we will return for Cast and the Furious episode 6 get ready guys because it is on see you soon I'm on a plane and I can't complain <laughs> <laughs>